Well, good morning. I'm really wishing I did not do the whole move up thing now today, but that's okay. We're going to get past it. I am not uh, Travis with a shaved beard. I am not uh, Pastor Mark from 50 years ago. My name is <laughs> maybe 60. He's not here. I can say whatever I want. Um, <laughs> No, my name is Nathan. I'm the children's pastor here. I've been in that position for a little over a year now. Um, but Pastor Mark uh, asked me to come and preach today to step out from teaching the kids back in Hope Kids and come teach you guys a little bit bigger kids today. So um, I am very grateful and thankful that he has given me this opportunity um, and just to be able to come and share what God has kind of been speaking to me about this series. We are still in the series, The Fight. Um, we are still going through that. All the guys, Matthew, Travis, and Mark, have done an incredible job communicating the different pieces of God's armor and how they all work together and how we're supposed to put on the whole armor of God and not just bits and pieces. But I will say this, as great as the series has been, as much as I feel like I've gleaned uh, just knowledge and wisdom from it, as, as much as I've been being taught from it, I cannot wait for this series to be over. Now, before you go and run to Matthew, Travis, or Mark and say, Nathan just said you guys are poop and the series is terrible and this is all just horrendous. I'm not talking about the content of the series. I am talking about one thing in particular, Bob. Okay, now the reason I say Bob is because when he's not on right here, he is off in the corner watching everything that we do. I'll be walking through here uh, to get to Hope Kids to set up for Sunday or do something like that, and I'll feel like there are these eyes just boring into my head, and then I do a double take, and it's Bob just sitting there. I don't even know if that's a smile. I don't know what you want to call that, but like the model pose or whatever, and it's just terrifying. Pastor Mark calls it the salvation test is when you get jump scared. Do you cuss or not? I have passed all of the salvation tests, but I have had a lot of them in the past seven weeks that this series has been going um, through, but um, I am, I'm just happy that I can be up here today because me being up here means that it's one step closer to Bob, creepy Bob is what I've been calling him lately, uh, being off the stage and gone forever. So if your name is Bob here today, I am not talking about you. I am talking about creepy Bob of how Sethicus, our mascot for this fight. Before I continue to spiral, will you guys pray with me and for me as we uh, begin today? Let's bow our heads. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much. I'm just for the time that we have here together as a family. God, I pray that as um, I am up here today, that people see less of Nathan and they see more of you, God. That the words that I speak are not my own words, but that they are your words, God. I pray that it's not just that, but that they are said with boldness and confidence, God. That what I am saying holds truth. That what you are speaking through me holds truth and value, God. I pray for every single one of these people in the room that they don't just hear it today, but that they, that they take it with them throughout the week. We thank you again for everything that you do for us that we can see and that we cannot see. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, to preface this sermon, I will get into it eventually, I promise. I do have to say two things that relate to the fact that I am a children's pastor. Because I am a children's pastor at heart. The first is that when I'm back there in Hope Kids Teaching, I'm used to calling out people. I'm used to making sure that people, if people are talking to each other, I'll, I'll call them out and say, hey, quit talking to each other. If they're on their cell phones, uh, some of them do have cell phones, I'll ask them to get off of it. If they're going to the bathroom 1,400 times, I'll ask them if they can stop. I'm used to calling people out. So if I accidentally call you out today, no, it's not a personal vendetta against you but it is simply a knee-jerk reaction. The second thing also pertains to the fact that I'm a children's pastor, and that is that I'm only used to going for 12 minutes. So if we start wrapping this thing up in 10, no one panic. We're beating the rush today to lunch, and we'll have a good time. I'll probably look down and realize I'm short on time, and we'll split up into small groups or something, and I'm just joking. We're not going to do that. 
Again, before I continue to spiral, because I could continue to talk about all the things of Hope Kids related, but let us read Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. So if you have your Bibles today, flip to that. That that has been the scripture that we have been going through during this series um, that that the armor of God comes from. Um, So let's read it today. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then we come to our scripture that we're going through today. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So today we are going to continue going through the pieces of the armor of God. We're going to go over another piece of God's armor. And as it's not a physical piece of armor like the breastplate of righteousness or the shield of faith or anything like that, we are going to be talking about prayer and how it still is a piece of the armor of God, just not a physical piece. Uh, Pastor Mark, this, this series has said that the bottom line of the series is to stand firm in the battleground of our relationships. And so with that in mind, I started to think, okay, Pastor Mark, you gave me, what, eight words to go preach on, praying at all times in this period with all prayer and supplication. I realized, what can I say about prayer as it fits into the context of Ephesians 6 and the armor of God? I started to think, and, and as little as uh, words as they are, it still holds a lot of value to how we can stand strong in the battleground of our relationships. It still holds a lot of weight in how we can stand strong in the battleground of our relationships. But then I started to think, in, I think in questions a lot of times, so I'll ask a question and then I try to answer it. And so I started to think of how does prayer, specifically prayer, keep us strong in the battleground of our relationships? But before we can really answer that question, I think that we need to take a step back and see how prayer is defined in Scripture as a whole. Because each of us comes with different backgrounds when the word prayer is mentioned. Every single one of us has different first thoughts, maybe, about prayer when it's mentioned. And so in order for us to all be on a common ground, to be able to go speak into the context of Ephesians 6, to be able to get some common ground and some similar understanding, I wanted to make sure that we all had... And uh, uh, just something that we can all grasp together. So I, I came up with three things, three general things about prayer that I think that we can all uh, kind of go off of that will help us with the context of Ephesians 6. And so let me share these three things with you. The first is that prayer is varied. Everyone in the room say varied for me. Prayer is varied. I'm going to show you some scripture to back this up. Colossians 4.2 tells us to pray with thanksgiving, to pray with giving thanks to who God is, what he has done for us. Acts 1.6 shows us an example of corporate prayer, praying together for something. Matthew 6.6 says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father in secret. To pray in seclusion by yourself. And then Matthew 6, 9 through 13, we see the template that Jesus gives the disciple and us of how to pray, how we should address God, what we should be saying to God. And in all of that and so many other examples in Scripture, I see that prayer is varied, that there's not just one way to pray that covers this entire room. There's not just a cookie-cutter way that we can say it and everything will instantly happen. 
Prayer is varied. Prayer can happen in a lot of different ways. We can say a lot of different things. We can do it in a lot of different places. We can do it in a lot of different positions. Arms out, head up high, flat on the face on the ground. That prayer is varied. Just like our conversations are different with the people in our lives, so too is our conversation, each of our conversations with God different. My conversation with my wife, Cassie, looks a lot different than the conversations that I have with my mom. As awkward as a comparison as that is, it's an, it holds a lot of truth because I'm speaking to two different, unique individuals. And so God does the same exact thing with us. He, is, he intimately knows each of us individually, and so he talks to us, he listens to us, he approaches us in ways that we personally, me, Nathan, can understand. That prayer is varied. The second is that our prayers are always answered by God. Some of you are instantly thinking, well, Nathan, I've been praying for a million dollars or two million dollars for a lot of years. Where is that? I've been praying for it. It's not here. God really always answers prayers. Where is it? To which I would respond, that's a really valid question. Where's my national championship that I've been praying for for Michigan? We do not have it. We keep choking every year. It's very frustrating. I got a lot of booze in first service too. That's absolutely fine. I don't mind. My identity is found in Christ, not in what your teams are. But... That our prayers are always answered by God. Let me give you some examples in scripture. Psalm 66, 19 says, But truly God has listened and God has attended to my prayer. Or God has answered my prayer. John 15, 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And countless other examples in scripture saying to ask and it will be given. I think a lot of times... A lot of times, we don't think God answers prayers because it's not in the way that we were expecting it, right? I think God answers prayers in two ways. The first way is yes, and then can anyone give me the second way? No, thank you. Wow, we are all on the same page. Excellent. Yes and no. Now, my wife would say that's a pretty pessimistic way of looking at things, and she has a little bit better of a way. She has a little bit more optimistic of a way, and that is that God answers prayer in three ways. And that is that he answers prayers like this. Yes, not yet, or I have something better for you. Yes, not yet, or I have something better for you. However you want to look at it, however you want to think that God responds to our prayers with, we we oftentimes forget that no is just as much an answer as yes. Who here in this room has kids? By raising your hand, who here in this room has kids? All right, to your kids, who here has said no more than they have said yes to your kids? Yeah, that's right, that's right. Okay, now, I don't want to make things tense in here, but who here is in a relationship or, or, or might be in a relationship? Now, who here to your significant other has said no more than that you have said yes to them? Anyone? Anyone want to be honest? Yes, we got some honesty back there, and Brandon, you are in trouble later on today. So, all that to say is, what is the most common response when you tell your kid no? What's the most common response that they say back to you? Why? And what's the most common, my mom is actually here today, and she said this to me millions of times. When I responded with why, what did she say back? Because I said so. Gosh, we have so many parents in the room, I love it. Because I said so. And for us, when we're giving that answer, it's a totally acceptable answer, but that the moment that God gives us that answer, we do a double take with them, we're like, excuse me? Did you not see the five-year plan that I have laid out? I laminated it. It's, it's, you cannot change it. It's laminated. Are you sure you know what you're doing, God? That the moment God gives us the answer, no, we all of a sudden freak out because it's not what we were expecting. I don't know if you've seen Bruce Almighty. I don't know if I can be referencing that movie in church, but I'm going to anyways. 
But Bruce Almighty, when he hits yes to all of the prayers and everything just goes into utter chaos, that's what I imagine it would be like if God just was saying yes to everything that we were asking. But the reality of the matter is that no is just as much an answer as yes, and we have to find comfort in that answer because God has an eternal perspective on things, whereas we have a transient or a temporary perspective on things. That God knows how that five-year plan is going to affect us 15 years down the road. Or God knows how that five-year plan is going to make us in heaven or somewhere else. And so he wants us to know that he has an eternal perspective and that he always answers our prayers. So the first, that prayer is varied. And the second, that God always answers our prayers. And then we come to the third thing. And this is kind of the culmination of what I have seen and what we can read in Scripture to see what prayer is. A kind of general definition of what prayer is. And that is... Prayer is our relationship with God. Prayer is our very relationship with God. It's not um, a component of our relationship. It's not a supporting cast member of our relationship, but that prayer is our very relationship with God. Prayer is how we have conversations with God. Prayer is how we hang out with God. Prayer is how we talk to him and he talks back to us, how we meditate on his word and how he whispers things into our soul. Prayer is our very relationship with God. And how interesting is it that Pastor Mark would say that the bottom line of this series is to stand strong in the battleground of our relationships. Thank you, Miss Cassie. That's why I married you. So, the standing strong in the battleground of our relationships. And what relationship would it be more important to stand firm in than our relationship with God? And so we come back to this overarching question that I was asking myself of how does prayer keep us strong in the battleground of our relationships? And to answer this, I want to look to Scripture, two specific uh, narratives, two specific pieces in Scripture that we are going to look at that will give us a three-part answer, to give us three answers of how prayer keeps us strong in the battleground of our relationships. So the first comes out of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. So as you turn there, you don't have to turn far, it's probably going to be one or two pages. And in the context of this passage is that Paul here is still praying to the church of Ephesus and the early believers there. And he's praying specifically for spiritual strength, for them to be spiritually strengthened. And so let's read this together. Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I'm going to read that last verse again. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul here is praying for spiritual strength, and he says, hey, you want to remain spiritually strong? You want to remain strong in the battleground of your relationships? Well, then the first thing that you need to do is you need to root yourself in the love of Christ. You need to root yourself in the understanding of Christ's love for you. You need to understand that Christ's love is wholesome, that it is perfect, that it is filled with both grace and truth, that it is full of forgiveness and redemption and honesty and accountability, that he loves each of us individually and intimately just as he loves the next person sitting next to you. And it's a love that he's praying for us to understand because it's a love that's not of this world. It's a love that we really do have to struggle with to comprehend because we can't understand how God can love me 110% but also love Cassie 110%. We can't understand and wrap our minds around how he can give all of his love to me and do the same to the next person and have a special, intimate, and individual relationship with that person. 
but we need to understand that Christ's love is a love that's not of this world and that he loves each of us. And once we root ourselves in that love, to root ourselves in that love of Christ means that we put that love, the love that is full of both grace and truth, we put that love at the center of everything and everyone in this world. Because Paul understands that the more deeply the love of Christ is known, the stronger our relationships will be in this world. He knows that if my relationship with Creepy Bob is based around our love of Michigan football, he knows if it's based around that, then what happens when Michigan inevitably starts to lose as we always do? Then the centerpiece of our relationship, the very thing that our love was centered around, the very thing that our friendship was centered around is ripped away from us and our relationship will be at a disadvantage in the fights to come. Or what happens when mine and Bob's relationship is based around our work? That we met each other at work, we continue to get to know each other at work. What happens when one of us gets let go or one of us decides to get promoted or one of us moves and goes somewhere else? Then the very thing that was the centerpiece of our relationship, the very thing that our relationship was based around is taken away from us and we are at a disadvantage in the fight. If our relationships are based on anything else other than the love of Christ, we are going to be at a disadvantage in the fight to stand strong in the battleground of our relationships. But if our relationship is rooted in the love of Christ, if our relationship is rooted in the love of Christ, then we are going to stand firm because it's rooted in Christ's love and not the circumstances of our life. If we root our relationships in the circumstances of of our life, then when our life starts to go bad, and it will, I'm only 22 and I've already feel like my life has taken some ups and downs a lot of times, then what happens when our life takes a turn for the worse or one of us starts struggling with depression or, or one of us uh, has an addiction or one of us just has a lot of shame and it bubbles up to the surface, then our relationship will be at a disadvantage because it's not based in the love of Christ. Which then brings us to our second thing. In verse 19 it says, And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That the more we root ourselves in the love of Christ the more the fullness of God will be revealed to us. The more we root ourselves in the love of Christ, the more God will be revealed to us. It kind of starts this cycle of things that we first know, understand, and root ourselves in the love that Christ has for us. And in turn, that starts to allow us to see his fullness dwelling in, through, and around us. But that we first have to have that love. And I think Paul is emphasizing this fullness of God. He's talking about the fullness of God because he knows what's coming in chapter 6, right? He knows he's about to ask us to put on that armor of God. And he knows that if we don't have the fullness of God dwelling within us, he knows if we can't find the fullness of God dwelling within us, then we can't possibly put on the full armor of God because it's not our armor. It doesn't say the armor of Nathan or the armor of Creepy Bob. It says the armor of God. And to put on his armor, we need his fullness dwelling in, through, and around us. And the way that we get that is through rooting ourselves in the love of Christ and having that love reveal his fullness to us. I think also he uses the word fullness here very intentionally because what the word fullness means is that in every single atom that makes me me, every single atom that makes you you, if you have believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then his presence, his spirit, his fullness is there. That wherever his love resides, so too his spirit will be there also that he uses that word fullness to emphasize that once the love of Christ is known and put at the center of your life, then his presence, his spirit, his fullness dwells there because that's where the love of Christ is. And wherever the love of Christ is, there the presence of God is as well. And so we get those two parts of the cycle, that the more we root ourselves in the love 
of Christ, the more we are revealed his fullness and brings us to our third point. And this third point is that once the fullness of God, once you find the fullness of God dwelling in your every being, once you can really start to see that fullness culminating in you, then the more we start to look like God and less of us, more of him, less of me, that it takes us to start with love, go to fullness, have his fullness, find his fullness within us, and to have that fullness lead us to changing our will to his will, conforming our will to his will. But to really drive in this point, I think I really wanted to turn to a different narrative. Matthew 26, 36 through 46. And in this narrative, we see this example of conforming wills. That Jesus here is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now we know right before this, in the context of this passage, right before this, Jesus and the disciples just had Passover. And right after this, Jesus is betrayed by Judas and the crucifixion narrative starts. But right in the middle is where we find Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you will, will you read with me Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, the very same words again. And then we see that he says, Sleep, sleep later, I'm about to be betrayed, let's do this thing. That's a paraphrase there, but that's essentially what he says there. And the piece, there are so many different pieces to this narrative that should spark conversation and thoughts after this and during this. But the one thing that, I, that stood out to me as I was reading this narrative was what Jesus prays for. Was what Jesus prays for. Three times Jesus asks God, God, if there is any other way that I don't have to be brutally beaten, if there's any way that I don't have to be whipped, if there's any way that I don't have to be stripped down to nothing and shamed in front of hundreds of people, if there's any way that I don't have to have nails pierced through my wrists and my feet, if there's any other way that I don't actually have to die, can that happen? I feel like that's a really reasonable prayer, right? But Jesus is asking this to the Father. And the reason that I find it so interesting is that Jesus is asking a question that he already knows the answer to. And he asks it three times. That Jesus is the only person in this world that knows what God is doing, but more importantly, why God is doing it. In our lives, we don't get the what and whys a lot of times when God responds, right? We just, sometimes later in, our, in the trials that we go through, we get the what and whys. But a lot of times God responds and we have to trust and follow him. But Jesus here knows exactly what is going to happen and why it's going to happen. And yet we still see Jesus three times ask God if there's any other way, can it happen? Why would he do this? Why would he be asking God this? And I think that it's because Jesus here is exemplifying something that we sometimes struggle to remember. In the words of C.S. Lewis, prayer is not about attempting to change God's mind. It's about changing ours. 
that Jesus here was exemplifying something that I don't think Jesus was really trying to change God's mind here. What Jesus was doing was that he was having a relationship with the Father, that he was sharing more than just the surface level good stuff in his life, and he was saying, God, I am scared. God, I am in anguish, intense sadness. God, I am doubting what you have put before me. And what he was doing in that moment was that he was opening up so that God could come in and conform Jesus' heart and mind to look like the Father's heart and mind. That Jesus understood something. That it's more, a relationship is more than just sharing surface level stuff. A relationship is more than just, hey God, I got a hundred on my report card. Hey God, I, I'm doing really well at work. Thanks for that. God, uh, thanks for blessing us with food. That, those are great things to thank God for. But when that's all we're doing with him, then we're not actually having a relationship with him. Because a relationship with God looks a little bit more like this, in my experience at least. God, I am really mad at you right now. Why are you doing this? Did you not see my five-year plan that we talked about earlier? It's laminated. Come on, are you sure you know what you're doing? My plan seems like it would work so much better than yours. That when we don't open up with God, when we aren't vulnerable with God, when we aren't honest with God, then we aren't having a relationship with him. But Jesus here understood that to have a relationship with God meant to be vulnerable, honest with the bad things and the good things, and he was opening himself up to God. For a lot of us, myself included, we use God as a resource a lot of times. We use God as a resource during the fight in our lives, the fight to stand strong in the battleground of our relationships. In my life, I have learned what prayer should not look like. When I was in high school, I swam, and before races, I used to pray, but I used to pray, God, let the work that I've done show here, because I was scared. It sounds like a good prayer, but I was scared that if I prayed to God to win the race, then he would say, Nathan, that is far too prideful of you. I must humble you now, and you are definitely going to lose that race. That's by somehow me praying to win, God was going to jinx me in the race, and I was going to lose that I treated God as a genie, that I only went to him when I needed him, right? And I felt like I had to tiptoe my way around the three wishes or the 10 wishes that I was asking in order to trick God into giving me what I wanted. I had the Michael Scott, um, Michael Scott mindset of prayer that I wasn't superstitious, but I was a little stitious about God, right? That I was worried that somehow he was going to jinx me or he was going to be out to get me. That we use God as a resource more often than we do, we, we use him as a relationship. And of course, I learned that that way of thinking about prayer was incorrect as I grew in my faith and as I read scripture and I had people pouring into me and telling me. And also because I was being really careful with my prayers, but I was still losing a lot of races in swimming. So it wasn't exactly helping. But for Jesus, he understood that prayer wasn't just a resource, but that prayer was the actual fight to struggle through that once he opened himself up to God and allowed God's will to be his will, then every single thing that happened after that moment in the garden, every single thing, the beating, the whipping, the shame, the nails through the wrists, the actual death, the burial, and the resurrection, all of that was the means to fulfill the will that the Father had put in place back at the Garden of Gethsemane. That all of that that happened was just the means to fulfill this will. And that was where Jesus found his comfort. Let me read you a quote from Haddon Robinson. If you don't know who that is, he's a professor at a school there. Here's the quote. Where was it that Jesus sweat great drops of blood? This is an actual condition that when you get so stressed, so filled with anxiety, that you can genuinely start to sweat blood. It's never happened to me. Maybe it's happened to one of you. I I have not heard of it, but it's it's an actual condition. That where was it, he says, 
that Jesus sweat great drops of blood, not in Pilate's hall, nor on his way to Golgotha. It was in the garden of Gethsemane. There he offered up prayer and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Had I been there and witnessed that struggle, I would have worried about the future. If he is so broken up when all he is doing is praying, I might have said, what will he do when he faces a real crisis? Why can't he approach this ordeal with the calm confidence of his three sleeping friends? Yet when the test came, Jesus walked to the cross with courage, and his three friends fell apart and fell away. That we treat prayer as something to use, we treat our relationship with God as something to use when we are in the middle of the fight, when in reality we need to start treating and seeing prayer as another essential piece of God's armor to stand strong in the battleground of our relationships. That prayer is something that we put on, our relationship is something that we set ourselves in before we enter the fight so that when we get into the fight, we can see that everything that is happening is just a means to fulfill his will. If we aren't doing that, if we aren't having a relationship with him, if we aren't first rooting ourselves in love, finding his fullness dwelling within us, and having that fullness change our will to his will, if we aren't doing that, then we will be at a disadvantage and we will lose the fight. Satan in the, in the battleground, Satan in this battleground wants to divide each of us. Satan in this battleground, in this fight to stand strong in our relationships, is trying to divide and separate us from everyone, especially God. He wants to make us feel like we are the only ones in this fight and that we are the ones that have to fight it. I don't know why, but in my mind, whenever I've envisioned a fight with Satan or a fight with my sin, I've never envisioned like a sword. I've envisioned a tug-of-war battle, which I don't know why, but I just always have. If you don't know what tug-of-war is, it's when you pull someone over a line or into the pool of water, then you win and so on and so forth. Tug-of-war, pretty basic. But how I've envisioned this battle is that in our life, Satan wants to separate us and divide us. And Satan has this power. And we live in a confusing world, sometimes a difficult one, and a lot of times a frustrating one, where Satan has this power to do that. He has a real tangible power, and yet Jesus has complete victory on the cross. We live in this confusing reality sometimes where we have to balance those two things. But can I tell you, the power that Satan has, the only power that Satan has in our lives is to convince us is to convince us to cooperate with him, is to convince us to walk over to this rope and to pick it up and start fighting our own battles, to convince us that we are the ones that have to fight our own battles. I envision it when we face temptation and lies or anything like that, that Satan picks up this rope and he says, hey, Nathan, you want to fight for it? You might be able to win it this time. Come on, come fight for it. You can do it. You're the only one that can do it. It's your battle. It's your fight. It's your addiction. It's your struggles. It's your sin. You have to be the one to take care of it. You have to defeat me. That Satan is trying to convince us to come and cooperate with him, to fight our own fights. And in a moment of honesty, I I will share this. I have lost a lot of fights thinking that I was the one that had to go over to that rope and pick it up and start tugging against Satan. I've lost a lot of fights tugging against Satan for my addiction to porn. I've lost a lot of fights against my sin of pride and thinking, well, I'm better than those people because those people are going out and getting drunk every night or those people are going out and sleeping around with people or those people are doing things that are way more obvious and way more prominent. Therefore, the things that I'm doing are not as bad and therefore I'm a better person than them, allowing pride to seep into me. I have lost a lot of fights doing a lot of things that I regret 
I have lost a lot of fights picking up this rope, thinking to myself, I have to be the one to fight this. But can I tell you something? In all of those fights that I have lost, and in all the fights that I will lose, I will not and have not lost the war. That we have all lost a lot of fights. That maybe some of you have lost fights in your marriage, shoving down problems until it exploded in a separation, divorce, or breakup. Maybe you have lost a lot of fights when you acted on your feelings of lust, when you saw a really attractive person and then you cheated on your spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend. Maybe you've lost a lot of, pri- a lot of fights when you allow pride to seep in and you think, well, I'm not as bad as that person. Their sin is a little bit more obvious than mine. Maybe you've lost a lot of fights believing that your self-worth is found in your outward appearance. Maybe you've lost a lot of fights thinking that your affection can only be gained, that you can only gain someone's affection by doing things for them or to them or sending them things that you should not be sending them. Maybe you've lost a lot of fights as a parent thinking that you're a failure because your kids are struggling with something that you never thought in a million years you would have ever seen them struggle through. That maybe you've lost a lot of fights when you get depressed because you got 60-something likes on Instagram or Twitter and Cindy Lou who got 268 Instagram likes or something like that. Or maybe you've lost a lot of fights when to deal with stress and anxiety, you pick up a bottle of whiskey or something like that to deal with it rather than going to someone who can help you. We have all lost a lot of fights and we will continue to probably lose fights. But can I tell you something? We will not and have not lost the war. That we may lose some fights. That we may struggle against Satan But what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, the assurance that I have because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross far outweighs any of the losses in my life that I could ever suffer. Because you see, Satan is going to convince us to look away from the cross. This is how I imagine it, that a lot of times in our life, we become so focused on Satan's power that we say, Satan, I know you have power, and we recognize that Jesus is over here with victory on the cross. When in reality, we need to be completely transfixed on the cross, the complete everlasting that victory that Jesus has on the cross, while recognizing that Satan is back here with hindered and temporary power. That the power that Satan has is hindered and temporary, and the power that he has is to tempt, to lie, to steal, to cheat, to convince us to come and cooperate with him and to come and pick up that rope and start fighting for the battles in our life. But the more we focus on the truth that Jesus has complete and everlasting victory on the cross is the moment that we will continue to stand strong in the battleground of our relationships. And the way that we do that is through having a relationship with God. The way that we do that is by focusing on this cycle of rooting ourselves in his love and constantly trying to understand and pouring into scripture about what God is and who God is and what kind of love he has and and exemplifying that and seeing that love exemplified in other people by surrounding yourself with people that have the love of Christ in them and allowing them to let that seep into you and to see what the real love of Christ actually looks like. To let that love then reveal the fullness of God to you. To let that fullness come through your every being. To have it culminate through you to the point where you start to look a lot less like Nathan and a lot more like God. A lot less like Nathan and a lot more like Christ. That the way that we stop picking up the rope in our life, the way that we stop trying to fight our own sin, is by being in a relationship with God and understanding that, yes, Satan has power, but the fight that you are fighting right now, Jesus has already picked up the rope and tugged Satan into the pool of water or whatever you want to pull him into. So how does prayer keep us strong, strong in the battleground of our relationships. 
How does prayer keep us strong in the battleground of relationships? It keeps us first strong in our relationship with the Father. That prayer keeps us strong in our relationship with the Father. So, as the band comes out and I start to wrap up, and I will actually try to wrap up. I know sometimes we say that, and then it's 15 minutes later and we're still going. But I really will try to wrap it up in about five minutes. But the question that I really want to leave you guys with today, and the question that I'm still struggling through, and I, I, I was actually kind of anxious to even ask this question, because I felt like to ask this question that I'm about to ask, I have to be at a point where I'm past this. But the question is, what battles are you trying to fight yourself? And the reason I was so anxious about that was because, and is because, I'm still in the midst of battles where I'm picking up the rope and trying to tug against Satan. I'm still in the midst of battles where I'm pulling and losing some fights against Satan. What battles are you right now trying to fight yourself? What places, situations, trials in your life are you trying to get through on your own? Can I tell you something? That Jesus has victory over those battles that you're going through right now. I don't want to demean what you're going through. I don't want to demean the depression that you may be feeling, the anxiety that you might be having I don't want to mean the situations in your life that, that are seemingly hopeless, but I, what I want to do is to give you some confidence and to give you a place to put your hope and assurance in, which is the cross, and not just the cross, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That once we have a relationship with God, and once we are continually working on that relationship with God, it becomes a little bit easier to transfix our eyes upon that truth because we are living that truth. That when we are in a relationship with God and when we are working through what it means to be rooted in his love, that some of you right now are trying to even figure out the fact that God loves me. I don't think God would love me. He's done, I've done too many things to, to have his affection. There's no way that he could love me. But can I tell you something? I believe it's in Romans that while we were still sinners, Christ died to save us. That while we are still messed up and broken, and we still are messed up and broken, Christ came, died for us. That God loves you, and God wants an intimate and individual relationship with you personally. And in that love, when we understand that love, and when we root ourselves in that love, then we have his fullness, then we can find his fullness dwelling within us, through us, and around us, working through us, in us, and around us. And when that fullness, when we can find that fullness culminating in every single aspect of our being, in every single atom, then our will st starts to look more like his will. Yeah, maybe some of you guys right now are struggling to even understand what his love looks like, but maybe some of you in this room right now are believers. Maybe some of you guys right now know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, but you're just not quite sure how you can have a relationship with him. Can I tell you, it all starts in understanding his love by pouring yourself into scripture and by surrounding yourself with people who can support you, build you up, encourage you, and teach you more about who and what God is to us. Or maybe some of you right now in this room have a relationship with God, but you think that it's reached the pinnacle of the relationship, right? That you think that there's not much further that you can go in your relationship with God and that you are kind of stagnant right now. 
can I tell you that this cycle is so important to continue to strive for because the more we can see his love, the more we can find his fullness, the more our will will look like his will, the closer we will be in relation to God, but also the stronger we will be in the relationships in this world. As I genuinely wrap up now, can we bow our heads? And while our eyes are closed, I want us to think about battles that we are still trying to fight right now. Battles that we are picking up the rope and trying to defeat Satan ourselves because he is convincing us to cooperate with him. And right now I want to extend an opening to the altar. A lot of times I think we think that we have to have these really big, massive problems in life in order to come up to the altar. Or a lot of times we may feel like, should I go up to the altar right now and pray? And we let fear hold us back in our seats. Not that the altar is some incredible place, but what it does is that it shows that we are opening up to God and being vulnerable with, vulnerable with him, saying, God, I want a relationship with you. God, I want my relationship with you to go further. God, I want to know you more. Or God, I just want to know you. That the altar is this place where we can step out in our faith. You can do it at your seats too, but the altar is this place where you can step out in your faith and show God that you are wanting more. More of him and less of you through having a relationship with him. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you so much. Thank you for the fact that every single battle that we are going through right now, every single fight that we have faced, that we are facing or that we will face, face that you have already won that battle that you have victory through the cross and resurrection. God, I pray for every single one of these people in this room today, including myself, that when we face fights, trials, tribulations, hard things in life, that we will focus and transfix our eyes on the hope that you provide on the cross rather than fixing our eyes on this rope, rather than fixing our eyes on the power that Satan has, but that we understand, know, and live out your victory complete and everlasting on the cross and not look at Satan's temporary hindered power. God, we love you so much. We thank you for the examples that you set for us in Bible. We thank you that you are here dwelling in, through, and around us, that you are always with us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, God. We pray that we look more like you and less like us, God. More of you, less of us. In your name we pray.